So we are continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes. And um, I'm going to repeat this over and over and over again so that you'll understand. The Beatitudes is Jesus' description of what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, This is Jesus' description of what a Christian should look like, right? That should look like what a Christian is. This is a description of what a Christian is according to the Lord Jesus, right? We talked about, you know, we, we, t- we talk about the four qualities so far. But if you look at, if you study the Beatitudes, and this is what I discovered this week as I was preparing for the message, the Beatitudes are, very, is sim- are structured very similarly to the Ten Commandments, right? So there's Ten Commandments and there are nine Beatitudes, right? And they're similarly structured because in the Ten Commandments, right, Commandment 1 through 4 is about how people love God, right? Commandment 1 through 4 is about basically how you love God. Loving God means recognizing that there is only one true God. You don't make any graven images that represent who he is. You don't take his, you don't take his name in vain. And you take his Sabbath. You rest and you remember all his good work on the Sabbath. So Commandment 1 through 4 is about how you love God. Commandment 5 through 10 is in the light of commandment one through four, how you love other people. That's how it's structured. One through four is about our relationship with God. Five through 10 is about in the light of who God is, how we should deal with other people. That's how the 10 commandment is structured. And that's how the Beatitudes are structured. There are nine Beatitudes. Beatitude one through four, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, being meek, hungry thirst for righteousness, is a description you see this is a description of, about, of, of a person standing before the Lord. You see, a Christian is someone who lives in the personal sphere of God. God rules everything. God rules the universe. God rules this earth. But not everyone in the citizen in this world are the citizens of his kingdom. Being citizen of his kingdom means you are per, you're dwelling in a sphere where God dwells with you personally. And so... To, uh, the first four Beatitudes are as a description of what a person who is in the personal sphere of God looks like. They're standing before, the, before God as, as they live with God in this sphere. So if God is personally dwelling with you, Jesus is saying the first thing that you will be is that you know that you are spiritually poor. You know, when God dwells with you personally, you know because he's so holy, that there is no way that you can ever possibly meet his standard. And there is no possible way that you are eligible to become a king, citizen of his kingdom. When God personally dwells with you, you know that you are your unworthiness. And yet you know, despite your unworthiness, God made you a citizen of his kingdom. If God personally dwells with you, you will mourn over your sin. And that's just the truth. The more you dwell with God, the more you understand what's in it, and the more you mourn over it. But only, not only will you mourn over your sins, you'll be comforted in the fact that Jesus forgave you. When you're in the personal sphere of God, you will be meek. Be meek basically is, you know how small you are, and you realize how big God is. That's what being meek is about. Look, I'm almost 50. Right? My birthday, one, like next week, two weeks, my birthday, right? I expect a cake, by the way, right? So 
like happy birthday, pastor was just gonna come down the hallway with happy birthday, five zero. I'm just, I'm just in front of 50, yeah. But I'm old, and the beauty of being old is this. You have years, year, you have years to look back on your life. And like Moses said in Psalm 90, which we talked about during prayer meeting, I didn't see most of you there, shame on you, right? What Moses talked about in Psalm 90, and which I perfectly agree, is when I look back upon my life, there's two things that I know for sure. The first thing is, I know that I am weak. It is evidently clear in the last 48 years of my life how weak I am. But another thing that I'm absolutely certain about is how great God is. Despite my being so small and insignificant and sinful, God is faithful, God is strong, God provides, God delivers. When you're in the personal sphere of God, this is what you realize, you are meek. When God dwells with you personally, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because God is righteous. When God is personally dwelling with you, you hunger to be right. These are the type of people, qualities that people possess when you are in the personal sphere of God. Now the question is, people who dwell in the personal sphere of God, when God is affecting them, how should they affect other, how should, when God is, when God dwells with you personally and starts affecting you, that relationship with God cannot help you, cannot help but to affect your relationship with other people. It's true. When God dwells with you personally, when God starts to shift your eyes and make you look at things, invariably, he will change the way you treat other people. We have this dangerous misconception that we compartmentize our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. No, that's not true. Your relationship with God will absolutely affect your relationship with other people. That's why in 1 John, John says, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't know God. John is saying you cannot say you're affectionate towards God and yet hate, other, hate your brothers and sisters. That's, not, that's, that's false. Our relationship with our brothers and sisters to other people clearly reflects our relationship with God. The way you treat your husband, the way you treat your parents, the way you treat your coworkers, the way you treat people in this church tells you more about your relationship with God than any other thing. Jesus says, when you dwell with God personally, your relationship with other people will change. It has to change because God affects you, because God affects everything. And the first thing that Jesus, and that's what the, that's what the fifth to the tenth, ninth beatitude talks about. What a person who is affected by God looks like. And the very first thing that Jesus talks about is if you are living in the personal sphere of God, if you start to possess all the four qualities, what you will invariably become is you will become merciful. The way you know that you are dwelling in the sphere of God is if you become a more merciful person. Now the question is, what does a merciful person look like in the eyes of God? This is Jesus' description of what a merciful person looks like. 
in Luke chapter 6. If you have your phones and your Bibles, if you could, but you know what? Don't worry. Be comfortable. It's Sunday. Here day. Take a day off. I will read what Luke chapter, chapter 6 talks about. This is Jesus' description of what a merciful person looks like. Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone takes your coat, I'm sorry, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But if, you do good, if, but if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, as you will be the children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful to you. This is the word, word of the Lord. This is what a Christian looks like. being incredibly kind and generous to those who mistreat you. The, mo the ones who talk slander against you. The ones who want to take, take advantage of you. Jesus says, love them. Pray for them. Give your things to them. That's the life of mercy. And this is how a Christian lives. Is that how you live? Is that how I live? Look, this week was a rough week for me. Um, I remember last week I was praying against the enemy, and I was like, oh, I was rebuking the devil and all that stuff, and oh, the devil did his work this week. Two clients start complaining about how unresponsive I am. I pour my life for them, I sleep late at night for them, and yet they complained that I didn't answer their emails. It took me like 24 hours to answer their emails. The bitterness that started welling inside me. They mistreated me, right? What, what is my response? Is my response what Jesus said? Did I start praying for them? No. There's a desire for me to belittle them, slander them. We are naturally, we're not merciful people. When you look at these things, would you say these things to your children? Will you say these things? Will you say to your child, look, if someone takes stuff away from you, give them more. If someone hurts you, if someone slaps you on your left cheek, 
turn the other cheek and let them slap the other one. Would a parent say this? You're basically telling your children to live foolishly. And, I, and my mama never told me. My mama told me not to, not to be a fool, not to, take, not to let other people take advantage of me. Did your mama ever told you that? My mama told me that. Why do I call her mama, by the way? Anyway, my mom always told me, don't let people take advantage of you. I love my mama, but she's, not, but she's kind of telling me different things from what Jesus is telling us. Why is Jesus telling us to more or less live foolishly according to the standard of the world? It's because he is merciful. It's because he let other people, he loved foolishly. These things that he told us to do, he's the one who did it first, right? It didn't, it didn't he, it's the, the fact that we're saved is evidence that he's, he's a fool for loving people like us. Look, how should I order this example? When I was, I mean, I think I told you the story, but it resonates, so I'll tell you it again. And basically, I've been preaching for four years, so my story is bound to repeat. The saddest moment as a parent in my life, maybe the saddest moment in my life, is when Caleb, when my son was three, two or three, right? Um, we're, we were living in an apartment complex. I was at law school, and we were living in an apartment complex in Maryland. Um, the thing about Caleb is, and I'm glad that he's not here, he'll never listen to this because you know, he'll never listen to that sermon. He's a brilliant guy, like more or less a prodigy type of guy. But he's very socially awkward. He can't make friends. Even now he has a very hard time making friends. And that was evident ever since he was a little child. So I was living in an apartment complex when, I was, when he was toward three. And like he, I took him to the playground. And there were all these kids playing. And Caleb really wanted to play with them. Because he's no, he was the only child then, right? And all, the world he knew was me and his mom. And he wanted to play with other people. But he just didn't know how to. So he was like following people around. These like six-year-olds. But the six-year-old want nothing to do with him. They started running away from him, teasing him, telling him to get out of here. And yet Caleb didn't know. He just start, he's just still, it's just following them. Even though they said, you're not welcome here, get out. He still, he'll, he still follows after them. And as a parent looking at that, it breaks your heart. And it makes me angry at those kids, right? Because they're calling my son a fool, and my son is acting like a fool, trying to love people that don't clearly don't love him back. My son was a fool. Isn't that foolish love, the love that God shows you? I don't care what your religious affiliation, I don't, I don't care how long you've, you've been going to church. Let's be honest. You are disinterested in the things of God. Look, I had a conversation with a couple of young people at work, right? Oh, oops, I can't believe I said it. Maybe I'm going to get fired. So these young people, right, asked me at work, Jay, do you think I'm going to go to hell? And I said, yeah. I didn't say, I don't know. I don't say, 
maybe God will change you. I said, yeah. And they go, wow, that's direct. And I explained, look, I said, the Bible is a representation of who God is, God's character, the way God designed the world. Right? This is what God says the world is. This is what God says a human being is. And yet you don't care. Right? They said, yeah. It is the most natural thing in the world. For, this, for a person who doesn't care about the things of God. And if hell is a reality where people choose because they don't want to be with God, isn't it, isn't it the most natural, consequent, logical, doesn't it make the most logical sense for you not to want to go to heaven, not to be with him? They said, yeah. Because of your disinterest, you're going to go to hell. Maybe, maybe I'm going full-time next week, kids. Who knows? We're all disinterested in the things of God. Let's be honest, we are. Even if, even when you were a little, even if you like grew up in the church, you were disinterested in his things, right? You may, want, you may have wanted things from him. You may have wanted blessings from him. You may have wanted for him to grant your prayers. You may have wanted him to grant your wishes. And you may even turn to him when things went, went going okay. But the moment that you got the things that you wanted, or the moment that you forgot about the, your wishes, you are totally disinterested in his thing. We're like Cain in Genesis chapter 4. What did Cain, remember what Cain did? Cain just lifted up, like, he kind of, half, he lifted up half-baked offerings. Got a certain fruit from his land, and you go, here God, this is yours. He just half-baked it, right? And yet when God blessed Abel's offering, Cain got mad. Cain wanted the blessing. He was disinterested in worshiping God, but he wanted the blessings from God. Isn't that all of us? We want the blessings of God. Blessings in the form of, I don't know, a job. Blessings in the form of a wife. Blessings in the form of spiritual experiences. We want something from God, and yet things of God we are disinterested in. God, I want to, I want you to, I don't know, let me get into UVA. But I'm going to watch the show on the side. God, I want you to bless my career. But... I'm going to have premarital sex with my girlfriend. I want God, but I'm not going to follow. Thinking like that does not make you a Christian. Can't you see? What makes you a Christian is the things of God becomes an obsession, becomes a priority, becomes what you want in life, the things of God. All of us, I don't care how long you come to this church. If you're honest with yourself, you will know the things of God were not of interest to you. Just like those kids were totally not interested in playing with my son. You are not, I was not interested in living the world the way God designed it. But what does Jesus do? If it were me, and this is one of my major character flaws that I shared, if you, if, if you show this interest in me, I'm not going to go after you. When I was a kid, when I was younger, if a girl, if I knew, if I had a crush on a girl, but if I knew that girl wasn't interested in me, I, I just get rid of her in my mind. 
If you show any disinterest in me, I'm not going to go after you. I won't. I, I should because I'm more like Christ. But that's my natural inclination. Jesus didn't do that. You are disinterested. You wanted to, we, wanted, we just want to use him, right? But rather than discounting us, like my son, he just stops. He always comes after you. You hate his things. You disagree with the way he designed the world. And you destroy the people that he gave you. And yet he comes after you. When, when people were crucifying Christ on the cross, he was praying for those who were killing him. If you are a Christian, it's because like a fool, he came after you. And if you know Christ like this, will he not turn you into a merciful person? Look, remember the lady at Luke chapter 7? The lady who, were, who was just like really had an adulterous life. And when, when Jesus came to town, she goes to Jesus, right? And the only thing she could do in the presence of Jesus is to weep and to wipe his feet and pour perfume on his feet because she knows she's unworthy. And yet Christ loved her. Do you think such a person would start judging other people? Do you think such a person would be disinterested in other people? No, such a person will become a person of mercy. <clears throat> when you are a Christian, you receive mercy from God, a foolish mercy from Jesus Christ. And he's commanding you to show that mercy to the people in your life. Now the question is, what is the definition of mercy? The definition of mercy is seeing someone's misery having compassion over that person's misery and acting to relieve that person's misery. Once again, definition of mercy is this. Write it down, kids. It is becoming aware, seeing someone's misery, having compassion on someone's miserable state, and act, taking actions to, meet that, to, to, to relieve that misery. Look, I don't want to embarrass this person, so I'm, not gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna protect this name. Because I didn't get his permission to tell the story, but you know, he can sue me, right? So one of uh, one of us were, was moving the, the other day, right? And the, and this brother became aware that that guy was moving, right? And he says, "I'm going to help you." And the guy who moves says, "Oh, no, it's okay, it's okay." But the guy showed up anyway, right? Why? Because that brother who helped the other brother out saw the person's misery. Moving is a miserable experience, am I right? That's why I try to outsource it as much as possible, right? That person had compassion on that person's miserable state, and he took action to relieve that misery. That's what mercy is. And, the, and, and the mercy is clearly like reflected in the, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the good parable of the Good Samaritan? 
right? Parable of the Good Samaritan is this, for those of you who don't know. Jesus talks about a story, right? Jesus, Jesus says there was a Jewish guy, right? Who came, who was like, who, who was, I think he was on his way down from worshiping God from Jerusalem, right? And while, while he was going down after worshiping God, he meets a robber, and the robber takes his stuff, beats the living daylight out of that person, and leaves the person dead. The person is dead on the side of the road, bleeding. Who passed by the road? First, a Levite, which is a religious figure, right? He, he, he passes by the road, sees the bleeding guy, and he, like, he, pa- he changes lanes, goes to the other side of the road, and passes him by. You know what I mean? A religious, a pastor, right? He sees a dead guy bleed, like half dead guy bleeding. He sees him, he goes, oh, if I touch him, he's going to make me unclean. So he goes to the other side of the road and just keeps on moving. Priest came down, to the, came down the road, sees a bleeding guy, says think the same thing. Oh, if I touch that dude, it's going to make me like, ceremoniously unclean. Therefore, he just like, ignores the guy and passes by. But a Samaritan, and you have to understand, a Samaritan is someone who was a second-class citizen to the Jewish nation. Into the eyes of the Jew, a Samaritan was like a dog, right? But this Samaritan, when he was passing by that Jewish guy bleeding, he, ha- he saw the guy's misery, had compassion on that guy's misery, and acted. He took him, bandaged his wounds, perm- oil and perfume on- oil on his wound, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him, paid the innkeeper to take care of him while he's on business, came back, compensated the innkeeper for taking care of him. He actively saw the misery of the person and he actively acted to relieve the misery of that person. That's what mercy is. Being aware of people's misery, having compassion on the person's misery, and taking active steps to relieve that misery. When we say we receive mercy from Jesus Christ, it means this. It means Jesus Christ saw our miserable state. He had compassion on our miserable state. And he took active actions to relieve our miserable state. Then the question is, what is our miserable state? What is the thing that causes us such misery? What is it, kids? Is it your wife? Is it your job? The state that causes you and me and the world such immense misery is sin, isn't it? It's sin. That's the source of all your misery. You may think the source of your misery is something that you lack. You may think the source of your misery is not having a significant other. You may think the source of your misery is not having a job that you like. You may think the source of your misery is your kid not getting into teaching. I don't know. I think that was the source of my misery for my wife like four years ago. Never saw her weep. She wept then, right? I hope she doesn't listen to this sermon, right? Oh, she literally, that's the first time I saw her cry. I go, what? She didn't cry at the wedding. She didn't cry at my wedding, right? Right, right. She she cried when Caleb didn't get to teach it. You go, what the? Right. 
We may think our misery is what we're lacking. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an engineer. I don't have a house. I don't have a mortgage. We think that is the state of our misery. That is, oh yeah, it's true. Those things make life hard. But the underlying issue of what makes your life misery, my life miserable, is sin. And that's true. What is sin? The heart of sin is pretty much ignoring God, right? You ignore God, therefore you're self-righteous, you're proud, you're self-righteous, right? You're self-sufficient, you're self-reliant, you're crazy, basically, right? Ignore God, you want to be the master of your own destiny, and what happens is you start to, choose, you start to look at things, everything in the way of your limited perception. The world says, follow your truth. That's what the world says, right? Every time I hear that, I want to I like, hit someone. And it sounds good, following your truth. Follow your truth. Follow your heart, all every Disney movie says. Follow your heart, follow your truth. And it sounds great. But we know what happens when you actually start following your truth, start actually following your heart? You become, you stop seeing reality for what it is. And you, get, you start to get attracted to things that are not really real, that are not really beneficial. And you start judging people based on not what is true and righteous and good, but you start judging people based on your limited understanding of what reality is. And I'll, share, I'll tell you an example. Today is my confession time, right? Look, I told you this before. I know I'm a sinful man because I categorize people based upon, I judge people based upon, or I tend to, or I'm prone to, not I do, I'm prone to judge people based upon their appearance. Not how good looking you are, basically how you dress. Because my mom pushed it in my mind, I gotta dress well, she did. Like I'm gonna career tomorrow, I'm thinking about what I'm gonna wear. It's very sad. Right? Because I know the very first thing my mom's going to say to me when, I, when she sees me is, she's not, I, it's good to see you, son. She'll say to me, I guarantee it, oh, you gained weight. Oh, oh she's going to say that. Right? So it's like how I look, it really matters, right? And so because I've been traumatized, I love you, mama, I, I'm prone to categorize things based on the way you dress. I scan. Do -do -do -do. This person, she dresses well, therefore acceptable. Ew. Oh, my eyes are looking. I'm not gonna, I'm, oh, don't, don't be self-conscious, it's okay, I don't judge you, right? It's funny, but think about how stupid and sinful that is. I'm looking at someone that's made in the image of God, the greatest machine ever designed by anyone in the history of the universe. It's you, it really is. But just because you're not wearing the right clothing, I think you are subpar. Everything that you are, everything that makes you special, everything that makes you glorious, I ignore, I forget, and I categorize you into an unacceptable human being. How sinful is that? Am I the only one who does it? 
All of us do it, right? How do you know? What do you talk about husband and wife when you're driving? Talk about other people. And you don't, see, you don't say nice things about that person. You're judging that person. How does PJ know? Did you put a microphone in my... No, because you're a human being. That's what you do. And you judge people all the time. Not on the standards of God, not on any objective standards, but based upon your limited perception of what reality is, you choose to categorize a group of people under the unacceptable column. People whom Christ died for. People whom is just a glorious creature in the sight of God. You say they are unacceptable. based upon your limited, foolish standards. And that causes misery. That genuinely causes misery. Look, like I had an aunt, right? My mom's oldest sister. American dream, right? Married a GI, came to America. American dream, right? Worked hard. Accomplished things. Bought a house, bought a Lexus, bought a baby grand piano. That you made it, right? If you if you if you if you bought a house, bought a Lexus and a baby grand piano, you you made it, right? That's my standard. How you made it, basically, right? All Pastor Wooden needs is a baby grand, and Pastor Wooden made it, right? Because he drives a Lexus, he has a home, right? But she was the most bitter person I have ever known. She just constantly judges other people, constantly telling me how wrong they are, constantly telling me how wrong they did to her. I tried to live with her for a month. I couldn't handle it, so I had to leave. I was 16. I was living with her, and I go, I can't do this crazy. I got to leave. Despite the baby grand piano and the Lexus and the home, her life was misery. She made herself miserable because she's constantly judging other people. And people leave her. That's, that's, that's what's rude in me. The sin. What is in me and what is in you is the source of that misery. Your foolish, my foolish perception of reality and when you don't know God, you start losing control, right? When you don't know God, you start to get addicted to things that are, not, that are not good for you. I was watching a TV show the other day, and there were like, it was about two dudes arguing over sports. One dude was crying because he, his team lost. And I go, what, are you crazy? Why do you cry over a foolish game? That's what happens when, when a life without God, you become... You prioritize things, addicted to things that are not real, that are not beneficial. That doesn't matter. You lose self-control. Your perception of reality is foolish. You start judging other people. You start judging yourself, right? Isn't that an accurate depiction of all of us? Judging others, judging yourself, being addicted to things that don't matter, comparing yourself to other people with standards that don't matter. Who cares if someone has a bigger house than you? Who cares? You do. Why? That's misery, right? 
But when God looks at us, when God looks at our sins, what does he do? Does he say, ew? Does he do what we do? You know what we do? We judge people. Like, do, do, does, he, does he relegate us into an unacceptable category? When he sees your sin, does he say, ew, unworthy, disgusting? He has compassion on you. It's the weirdest thing. When Jesus sees our sin, rather than being angered, he has compassion. How do you know? Jesus wept a lot. In the Bible, he wept. And he wept because of his people's sin. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept when Lazarus died. He wept on the sinful condition of the world. When Jesus looks at sin, yes, it angers God, it's true. But it also moves him with deep compassion because he knows the misery that it causes you and me. Not only does he have compassion, what does he do? He comes, and he actively comes to relieve it. That's what the cross is, right? Cross is for people who are chained to sin, who are dominant, who are just chained to the dominion and power of sin. And because they're chained to the dominion and power of sin, they do destructive things, unspeakable things. But Jesus Christ actively came to die so that by the cross, the sins that chained you, you will be set free from. And as you are set free from the bondage of sin, the crazy thought that you have in your brain, you start to think things clearer and see things clearly. And you are delivered from your misery. Jesus Christ has come to deliver you from your misery. Jesus Christ has not come to make your dreams come true. Jesus Christ has come to deliver you of your misery. And the misery is sin. And he is the only one who can deliver you from that. That's what the cross is. He actively came into the world 2,000 years ago to deliver you from your sins. And he still comes to you today, every day, to deliver you from your sins. It's true. That's what he does. You ignoring him and his word. We are really choosing to dwell in our sin. That's what we're doing. Not worshiping him. Not turning to him. We are really choosing to dwell in your misery. Rather than seeking the deliverance of Christ. I tell you, I truly do tell you, it's so true. When you reach out to him, he does come and deliver you from your sin. Look, as I was preparing for the sermon, um, I was listening to a sermon, right? So to prepare for a sermon, I listen to sermons sometimes, right? You know Joe Austin, he said, you know how Joe Austin prepares for his sermons? It says he listens to his own sermons. It's crazy, right? It's crazy, right? right? I'm not that crazy. I don't, I don't like listening to myself. But I listened to some of other sermons, right? I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Beck about mercy. Oh, I was driving to work. Oh, it was so great. It was 50 minutes. It takes me 50 minutes to drive to work. So, oh, I was like crying. Oh, the mercies of Jesus. Jesus, you, you're so great. And as soon as the sermon ended, I entered my garage. Right? You know what happened? As I was entering to the garage in my building, a car was like, a car was just, a guy was just like parked there, blocking the entranceway. Right? 
Make me late for work. Jesus, I love you. See the car? Oh, I got angry. I'm a fool, you know? But despite this propensity for lack of mercy, Jesus Christ uses that moment to remind me of exactly that and the million other reasons, exactly the reason why he needed to save me. The bitterness that I felt towards that driver that I don't know for making me late for work for two minutes. The Holy Spirit reminded me. It is attitude like that and many millions of attitudes that I have is precisely the reason why he came to the world. Because if, I, if he leaves me alone with that bitterness, I'm going to wreck my life. Just like my aunt wrecked her life. But he comes and he delivers me. He's going to come and he's going to deliver you. He's going to have mercy over you and help you deliver your sins. And he's going to help you like, overcome your sins. And that is the very thing that we need the most. When we understand that about Jesus, when we truly understand that he has come to deliver us from our sins and misery, misery and our sins, it is when we understand that then we become merciful people. And, and we become merciful people and God's going to use you to be merciful to other people so that through you, other people can discover who Jesus Christ is. Jesus' goal in your life is to deliver you from your misery, transform you into a more merciful person, and as he is transforming you, you will show mercy to other people so that you can be used to deliver other people from their sins. That's the design of a Christian. Let's be merciful this week. Wives, let's be merciful to your husbands. I know you know better, and you're right, right? Sure you're right. And clearly he doesn't meet your standards. Clearly he can do better. Stop judging him according to your standards. Let's be merciful. Why am I just calling out women? Because men are just victims. No. <laughs> Guys, start, be merciful to your wife. It's tempted just to listen. Listening and complying is not merciful. See your needs and meet it. But the only way you become more merciful people is to be reminded every day of the mercies of Christ who foolishly came to deliver you from your sins and who is constantly delivering you from your misery of sinful state. When you understand it, when you see that, you will become a person of mercy. And that's what life is about, basically, being merciful to the people around you. That's what life is. You can only do that through the mercies of Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Do you know that why Jesus came for you? Do you know the foolish love that Christ has for you? You are once you are disinterested. You we have the audacity to say that we belong to him, and yet we are we have zero interest in the things of God. 
We have the audacity to say that we belong to him and we want to use him when we need him. But we don't want to follow. Rather than dwelling in Christ, we want to dwell in our sin. We want to dwell in our misery. That is who we are. But Christ has compassion on you. And he wants, he comes and he wants to relieve you of your misery of sinful state. Do you know Jesus that way? Ask the Lord to make you see his mercy for you so that you will become merciful. The world says, protect your own. The world says, don't let, let other t- people take advantage of you. Jesus says, be merciful just as he is merciful to you. And the secret of being merciful is to see the mercy of Christ that has for you and pray that you will see it so that you will become merciful. Let us pray for these things. Father, we are beneficiaries of a very foolish love that you give. Father, we confess that we don't really, we never really wanted you. We confess that we have a very comfortable distance from you that we want to maintain. We want to live perhaps maybe a formalized religious life. following you, dwelling in you. We don't want that. Even though, Father, not dwelling in you causes us miserable in our sins, we choose to dwell in our sins rather than turning to the doctor who can heal our sins. We're such pitiful, foolish people we are. but you come to us. And I don't know why you come to us, but you do. And you make us better. You do show us mercy. You have compassion on our foolishness. You have compassion on our sinfulness. And you forgive and you mend. Despite our resistance, you come and you forgive and you mend. And that is is mercy. No, if we're Christians, we're, we receive that kind of mercy from you every day. It is our prayer to make us understand your mercy in our lives. May we understand the scandalous, foolish love that Christ has for us. And may that persuasive understanding of your mercy transform us into a, to be merciful people. Allow wives, husband and wife, to show be merciful to each other. Not judging, not fighting, but merciful. Help us to be merciful to our clients, to our bosses, to our subordinates. I know they can be infuriating, and I know they can be so they can they can break our hearts and stress us out. But to the people that distress distresses us, distresses us, make us into merciful people by reminding us of your mercy for us. Father, these things can be done 
Father, as we have sang today, that you can move mountains and you're mighty to save. And we know that you're mighty to heal. Heal our self-righteous, self-obsessed, prideful hearts and make us into a soft, merciful people. Father, I pray for our church. I pray, Lord, that may the work of the Holy Spirit be mighty, that we will become the people of the Beatitudes. Father, we help us to become merciful to each other in this church. Help us to be aware of people's needs here and help us to strive to meet it. Father, make us into a people that you have designed us to be. Father, I pray that for those of us who are in need, some of us have physical ailments, some of us have families who are physically ill, I pray for healing. I pray for those of us who are, so, who are going through difficult stresses of life, be it relationship with their families or their husband and wives or their children. There are things that cause us much sorrow. Father, I pray that you would deliver them from their sorrow. I pray for our relationship with our KM. I pray that KM will thrive as the gospel becomes more real to them. I pray, Lord, that you will, you will shape us and form us into the people that you want us to be. All these things. In Jesus' name we pray.